Hi, I'm Matt Janssen, and you're listening to the BRFCS podcast. York Rovers would like to welcome you to the BRFCS.com podcast, covering the 2019-2020 Blackburn Rovers Championship campaign, hosted by Ian Herbert and joined by some very special guests. Don't forget to check out the forum here at BRFCS.com to continue the discussion. What's that? That, my friend, is the new iPhone in a retro Rovers 1995 Premier League winning phone case. I need one. I can go on better than that. Not only can I tell you where to get one, but I can get you an exclusive discount. Get yourself over to theterrystore.com and enter BRFCS at checkout. An exclusive offer for BRFCS members and podcast listeners only. Holly? I'm sorry, I've got to go. Whatever your phone, make sure you represent your team. Visit theterrystore.com and enter BRFCS at the checkout. Hello and welcome to another episode of the BRFCS podcast. In this episode, we're going to be considering the career of Jim Smith as Blackburn Rovers manager. Jim sadly passed away during the week and so we thought it appropriate to provide our own tribute. Many thanks to Jim Wilkinson for penning this piece. It really is a great tribute to a fantastic Rovers manager. Hope you enjoy it. Just prior to the kick-off in last Tuesday's championship matches, news came through to Rock Rovers supporters of a certain vintage. When a much-loved old Rovers manager passes away, those around my vintage lose another cherished connection with our faded youth and the club a link with its relatively recent history. Jim Smith seemed as if he'd been hewn from the kind of granite from which football managers were made in decades past. He arrived at Ewood aged just 34 in the summer of 1975 as Rovers approached their centenary. He was Ewood's youngest ever manager and it was some years before he developed a late middle-aged liking for leather bomber jackets and flamboyant shirts. Without these accoutrements he looked practically as old when he first walked through the entrance on Nuttall Street as he did when he retired many years later. Born just eight days after John Lennon, and thus of practically the first intake to Miss National Service, even as a rookie manager he seemed blazered and tied and of thinning thatch to have more in common with men of a slightly military air, such as Ron Saunders and his Rovers predecessor Gordon Lee, than the flamboyant contemporaries, the likes of Pelé, Ringo and Frank Zappa. A career as a jobbing wing-half, spent largely in the 4th Division after failing to break through with hometown Sheffield United, although he was actually a Wednesday fan, a modest success at non-league Boston United, then with Colchester United, all convinced Rovers chairman Derek Keithley that he too might have some of the stuff which his predecessors Ken Furphy and Lee had, to breathe life back into a club which was tired, wearied and monochrome as the 1970s began. 
It was an inauspicious beginning for the not-quite-bald eagle, to say the least. He was not allowed a cash signing until October, when he took striker Bobby Svark from former employers Colchester United. Although Svark's goal record was decent, 16 in 42 league appearances, these were fitfully spread over two injury-plague seasons, and Svark is more remembered locally for running an alarm-fitting company than for football. Strikers brought in by Smith seldom thrived, but with a single exception, of which more later. And few were even remembered for any business impact that they had in the town, other than perhaps lining the pockets of Pleasanton publicans. After a draw and two wins in the opening second division games following Lee's third division championship season, one of them, a 4-1 win over Oldham, televised by Granada, who subsequently lost the tapes, Rovers won just three of the next 23, while Bohemian Rhapsody, Mamma Mia and December 63, oh what a night, enjoyed their runs at number one in the pre-punk era. I imagine Twitter and the fan forums would have gone quite ballistic at a campaign which saw us improve late on to finish only a point above fourth bottom Carlisle and eliminated at the first stage from both cups to third division PNE in the League Cup in 180 goalless minutes to add ignominy to injury. One shudders to imagine the current day reaction to a Boxing Day loss at York, who was subsequently relegated, followed by a 4-1 home humbling by Nottingham Forest in Cluffy's first full season at the helm. Our top scorers jointly were Beamish and Parks with seven league goals apiece. Young winger Kevin Hurd showed an eye for goal, with a couple in particular which would have graced a more exalted stage. His conversion to fullback came later. A win at Burnden Park in front of 25,000, John Waddington's goal ultimately robbing Bolton Wanderers of promotion, was a rare highlight as Ewood Gates fell below 7,000 regularly. It echoed a similar triumph against then fierce rivals Wanderers almost three years earlier to the day when another defender, Derek Fazakali, a Smith stalwart, had scored the winner before an even bigger Burnden throng. The next campaign was barely stuff of legend either. Rovers actually lost more games, scored fewer and conceded more, but 15 wins curiously gave us one more point, finishing in 12th place rather than 15th. Many of Smith's signings were in different frees or bargains such as Svark, Andy Needham and Bobby Mitchell, whilst a succession of loans such as Sylvester, Hutt, Heinsohn and Alcock were barely to exist in Blackburn Rovers folklore other than as future pub quiz questions. An opening day 3-1 he would win over Bolton proved a false dawn, as it was followed by six without a win. There was an early October thrashing of Notts County, as Rovers bagged six in a league game for the first time in 11 years. Typically, I missed it. Times were changing. The Sex Pistols had played the Lodestar in Ribchester that autumn, and I'd taken a Saturday job in Woolworths, mainly to feed an embryonic vinyl-buying addiction as the new bands rushed their raucous singles out. I also, it has to be said, had a pretty girlfriend. For the first time, football wasn't my number one pastime. The pretty girlfriend stood bewildered at the appeal of being out in the cold watching a drab collection of individuals as I introduced her to Ewood at the Boxing Day derby. Hostilities resumed after a decade, a division or two below Burnley, in the middle of another six-winless game run. We chucked a two-goal lead away late on, and a return visit five days later, as we were again schooled by promotion, title and European glory-bound Forest. That proved to be a last visit. 
The relationship survived a while, but only on the understanding that football dates were off the agenda. Finishes of 15th and 12th were little more than adequate, but in early 1976, a lone veteran from Wolves, Dave Wagstaff, had been brought in to provide a touch of culture and elan to the side, seldom seen since the Dougie days. Wagstaff and another season-wide man Gordon Taylor signed from Birmingham, neither much younger than Smith himself, seemed to encourage the young fullbacks. Hurd, still not completely settled in that position, and Bailey did their running for them, safe in the knowledge that the veterans could keep the ball and find them in oceans of space when their young legs carried them into it. Whilst a centre-half acquisition from Newcastle, Glenn Keeley, initially seemed a liability, own goals, needlessly conceded penalties for a variety of offences, some seemingly of his own intervention, a flowering was imminent. Smith had blooded a local school lad, Paul Round, who netted on his debut, which gave particular pride to my schoolmates and I. He was in the same year, St Edmund Arrowsmith's side. My pals, who were in the St Mary's College team, including future rover Mick Duxbury, often met in school finals. At the beginning of 1977-78, Smith brought in the rather odd-looking Spurs reject, the elaborately afroed Noel Brotherston, on a free, and he paid a modest fee for Grimsby striker Jack Lewis. With the now well-established and increasingly popular Wagstaff enjoying a glorious Indian summer of golden form, he had become English football's first red card in October 1976. The side got off to a, a modest start. Though there was never any extended and beaten run, the form and football blossomed enough to see Rovers in third spot by early December. Just two up in those days, remember. With a number of performances so sumptuous, those who watch the side remember the season with affection to this day. I'd rolled up at Lancaster University to study English by early October, and freed of my Saturday job duties, and fired by the kind of civic pride in your roots being thrown into living with a bunch of disparate strangers and genders, was by now fully reborn as a Rovers fan. Something that autumn, early winter, clicked into place. Lewis looked a classy forward with a goal in him, but proved injury-prone. However, Rovers were finding ways to win and unlikely heroes to finish off what was now an elaborate weave of wing and approach play, shared out amongst the variously gifted Hurd, Bailey, Waggy, Taylor and Brotherston himself, an immediate hit. Whilst a scintillating 3-2 Boxing Day win at Turf Moor remains the high and most affectionately recalled watermark, there were many other outstanding afternoons and evenings. A feisty bonfire night win against a star-studded Southampton who had Peter Osgood and Steve Williams sent off as Bailey teased them with insouciant dribbles. A 2-0 win over Luton on ice which had the match of the day mogul Jimmy Hill purring over a Brotherston chip and seething about a Keeley assault on the Hatter's Fuchillo in equal measure. Round scored two in a thrilling win over Stoke. Against Mansfield, Bailey scored an outrageous curler from the side of the area. Watch Nelinho's goal against Italy for Brazil in the 1978 World Cup third-place game and picture a mirror image. Even Stuart Metcalf, who began as a winger but now operated in the middle with Parks, could come up with moments of supreme individuality. My picker's performance of that season was a 3-0 win at home to Palace. With Lewis prone to injury, Mitchell ineffective, Smith put stalwart utility man Mick Wood up front and with the experimental, futuristic, centre-forwardless lineup working a dream, he could hardly avoid scoring the only two goals of his Ewood career. Hurd added a typical solo worldie. It honestly seemed as if we couldn't miss it a pass. 
Gates had risen to more than 10,000 as fans began to dare to dream of Division 1 for the first time in years. There was always a defeat, often heavy around the corner for a side so committed to attack, but when they went through the gears, it was heady stuff to watch. Ironically, a prolific striker was all Smith lacked. He signed the vastly experienced John Radford from Arsenal, but despite a debut opener in a 5-2 rout of Oldham, he looked largely disinterested and uninspired, particularly as the promotion dream had already begun to fade. Jim left for Birmingham just after three Radford appearances. The ultimate irony was that his greatest legacy to the club, a young striker brought to Ewood on a tip from one of his old Boston United connections, hadn't been quite ready at 17 to fit into a team his style would have suited perfectly. His name? Simon Garner. Thanks for the memories, Bald Eagle, and for leaving us with some of Ewood's most enduring legends as your parting gift. Noel Brotherston, Glenn Keeley and Simon Garner put in around 1,300 appearances scoring 250 goals between them. It might not be quite best lawn Charlton, but for 50 grand between them, that's some legacy. James Michael Smith, born in Sheffield, 17th of October 1940, and died 10th of December 2019. That was a tribute to Jim Smith, written by Jim Wilkinson. So, wouldn't you know it? Stopping in a traffic jam in Manchester and bumped into the man himself, picked up Tony Mowbray. Tony, five five games unbeaten here. What 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 are you thinking about that? Well, the thing is, lad, it's the secret of success is we decided we had a big team meeting and um, we took some inspiration from the supporters and uh, basically we went back to the 90s. So if you might have noticed there was a big banner at Stoke that said I only went with your mother because she's dirty, which is a reference to the Happy Mondays, which is a very popular music band from the 90s. And of course it was my heyday, so oh, wow. obviously I said to Toysin, get those spider legs out, get your foot round the ball, and you know, he'd been examining VHS videos that I dug out and took to the training ground, and he's very much modelled his game on Gary Pallister. Oh, well, of course. And, uh, and I said to Ducky, you know, look, look at Bernie Slaven there, an absolute fox in the box as he was for Middlesbrough. And I think, uh, obviously, he's noticed that as well. And of course, you know, we've taken inspiration from not only the Middlesbrough team, but uh, musical history. So, obviously, you've got, you know, the kind of dynamic leadership that... Uh, Darrell Hennon has been taken from from Ian Brown of the Stone Roses. Right, yeah, you he can genu- see that. Yeah, he genuinely is the resurrection. Oh well, yes. Yeah, and um, you know, and Danny Graham, you know, something of the Rolling Stones about him. Yeah, yeah. Real old rocker. And I think that's what it's all about, lad. Oh well. Uh, oh. Well. And Thanks, Tony. And obviously, oh. the, obviously, the lads had the Christmas party after the Stoke game. Mm-hmm. 
Oh yeah, and uh, was was uh, some of the players who's not been really involved in the squad there. You know, players like Richie, Richie Smallwood. Was he there? Oh mate, listen, Richie Smallwood is an integral part of the squad. In fact, I said to the lads, Richie Smallwood is the beating heart of the team. In fact, he's our very own Bez. Oh, Ed. Oh, Ed. I'm sure he'll be pleased with that. Uh, thanks, Tony. I'll see you later. Hi, Linz. Uh, I've had to ring you. I've got an idea. Go on, but you're going to have to be quick because I'm halfway through listening to the BRFCS podcast. Picture this. The Riverside stand. The big redevelopment. Okay. Okay, bear with me. We're going to take out all the seats. I've got it. Safe standing. Oh, no, 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 no. It's better than that. We replaced the whole lot with sunbeds. What? You bet. I've actually just got a Rover's Beach towel from the Terrace store, and it's absolutely fantastic. High quality, retro Rover's design. Mine's based on the 1995 Awaken. I like the sound of that. You could be onto something. Where did you get it from again? I got it from the terrorstore.com. All the podcast listeners get an exclusive discount by entering the discount code BRFCS at the checkout. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, of course, to Jim Wilkinson for penning those fine words about Jim Smith and also the contributions from Michael Taylor and Louis G. Uh, it wouldn't be the same without a Tony Mowbray intervention in one of our episodes. And special thanks, of course, to the guys in the Symmetry Band for all the music used in this and all of our episodes. We'll be back soon. See you then.